This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. Hello, my name's Miriam Nice and I'm your host today on the BBC Good Food podcast with Chef Tom Kerridge. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about cooking mistakes everyone makes. So thinking about skills that are a bit difficult to master, shortcuts we take at home, and then a few things that perhaps might show us up as sticklers in the kitchen. I'm going to confess, Tom, first on that last point. I get really upset when this happens and I might lose friends over it. I hope you're not going to fall out with me. Um, but I'm, I'm waiting. I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm, I've now got that nervous, sick feeling in my stomach going, oh my God, what's she going to say? I really don't like it when people throw away broccoli stalks. Oh no, I'm kind of with you on that. Broccoli stalks are great. Yeah, no, they're amazing. There's a real woody end that you can't really use, but the stalk is fantastic. Chop them up, it's great. Cook them as they are, as like actually like as a vegetable, it's fantastic. Also... Grate them, make them into pesto. They work really nicely. Broccoli stalk pesto. I have not tried that. So what, just with the parmesan with... Exactly, yeah. Make it as if you're using it with basil. Actually, you know, you could do 50% basil, like, you know, swap it in, put herbs through it. It works really well in a pesto. I'm absolutely going to do that. I think it's my favourite part and you just see them like rolling around after a fox has been at the bins on the street and I get really upset. I'm like, eat your broccoli stalks, people. Yeah, Yeah. essentially, (laughs) if you think what they are, like the stalk is the bit that transports... The, the the nutrients the flavor to the flour which is the broccoli head so it's the thing it's the it's got all that flavor in it in fact it's probably got more and texturally i think it's pretty cool 
I'm so happy. This is going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything that you see perhaps your friends or like new chefs do in the kitchen that perhaps they do wrong or don't get quite right first time? Yeah, listen, I think probably one of the most simple things and the biggest thing that so many people don't do, I mean, listen, it's not really a right or a wrong way. However, it's slicing and dicing onions, you know, so it's kind of like some people will cut them the wrong way. The best way for me to look at it is the onion, it shows you how to do it. It's got lines in it. So if you cut it from, if you're doing dice or sliced, you cut it from top to bottom, right, from the top to bottom, and then you can keep the little knobbly hairy end on, all right, and then you slice it down, through the lines and then turn it and then do it the other way. That gives you the dice. But also if you want them sliced, you take the hairy knobbly bit off and slice through the lines. Quite so, so often, so many people will do it the other way. So you get those kind of like semicircle bits of an onion. And it, it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. But to me, there is a right and a wrong way of doing it. And if you do it with the slice of it, you're less likely to cry because it's the acid in the onion that's released that makes you cry. So if you cut against the grain, you bruise it more, you're more likely to release the the oils and the acids that come out that will make you cry. And I did not know that. I was like making sure I had my glasses on, breathing through my Goggles. mouth. Just, just <laughs> cut it the right right way. Just do it yeah, properly. I mean, I'm not going to say it's a fail-safe method because some of those onions are much pungent, much more stronger. However, you know, sharp knife, cut with it, you, you've got less chance of crying. Okay, so I asked a few of my fellow food writers and foodies um, if there were things that, if perfected, would vastly improve um, the finished dish and things that they, you know, worked out for them. Um, So I wanted to get your insight on a few of those. Okay, I'm ready. All right, so not cooking things properly, so not cooking things for long enough, specifically, and we've already spoken about them, onions. Yeah, onions. How long? Honestly, it really depends. If you want it to be, you want that lovely caramelized sugars that come from them when they're browned, you know, a little bit like hot dog onions when you go to a football match, that kind of lovely smell. That's a long time. That can be 15, 20 minutes, you know, to get that wonderful color. And on a lower heat, quite often people put a lot of oil in there and cook them really fast and they, they, they almost burn, but still be raw in the middle. You don't want that. You want lower and slower to get that rich caramelized flavor coming out of it. Also, just just dice sweated down onions. In most recipe books, it says one to two minutes. That's rubbish. It's not. It's about four, five, six minutes. Like it takes longer than you think. And a way to actually help that happen is just put a pinch of salt in it as well if you're just sweating it down because the salt draws moisture. The moisture will then help steam. So they soften. Okay, so a pinch of salt in it if you're looking at softened onions. Don't put the salt in it if you want that caramelization, okay? You just want to keep cooking them. But again, it takes much longer than you think it does and says in recipe books. Mm, good to know. Okay, so that's onions and pastry. <clears throat> cooking that for longer. Pastry, 100%. That's one of the worst like uh, crimes in, in recipe books or in recipes that you see where people say, yeah, just cook for 15 minutes until it's in its golden brown. It's not golden brown after 15 minutes. You really want pastry to be lower, lower temperature, longer cooking, and you get this wonderful, rich, even cookery. It will help it be crispy. That's the big thing you want. We always want crispy pastry, whether it's lined in a tart or a quiche and things like even puff pastry. If you're making puff pastry or rough puff pastry or even you've bought some when you bake it and it rises 
Don't take it out too early. Don't stop it because you need that middle to be cooked as well because otherwise it goes soft and soggy. Quite often you can cook it on a high temperature to start and this is what we do in the kitchens. You cook it on a high temperature to get that instant heat that causes that steam and that puff to rise. Then you want to turn it down. So that's say 220. Then you turn it down to 180 and bake it. Okay, and then when you think it's almost ready, you can turn it down to 120 and leave it for another 15 minutes and it just kind of dries it out and crisps it. So, so important. Pastry definitely needs much longer cooking than it, than you think. It makes such a difference. Like you can just, you know, serve a tart to someone and they're like, oh, where did you get this? You know, I've made it myself because I've just cooked the pastry for longer. It just has that snap to it. It's like really, really deep, kind of like fudge, like golden brown. It's, it's actually quite dark. 100%. That's what you want it to be. And also it helps because then when you put a filling in, whether it's sweet or savoury, it, it, it's less likely to absorb. It's less likely to make the pastry go soggy. You know, if you get it really dark, crisp colour in the first place. Also for flavour-wise, the more it's cooked, the better it is. It, it has that slight bitterness and it counterbalance no matter what the filling is. And it makes the pastry feel such an important part of the dish that you're creating rather than just being something that is the thing that holds the flavor it becomes an extra layer of flavor it's so cooking pastry so important okay so on pastry give me give me a really good tart that you love to make well, do you know what well, if you caramelize that pastry cook it go, goes that really dark crispy biscuity brown and you know it, like really bronzed about it it's absolutely fantastic and then you can use that for so many different things you can use that for a classic uh, custard tart with nutmeg on it you can use it for a great you know a lemon tart that's f phenomenal but there's something once you've got the bitterness of that kind of pastry that crisp about it something like a really good classic very very simple chocolate tart works so nicely and you could do them two ways you can make like a ganache like a kind of like a truffle mix and just pour it in and leave it to set um, maybe in the fridge or just at room temperature and then slice it with a hot knife and that's a really really simple one to do you know it's just it would be like cream butter melted um, chocolate mixed together poured into this really crisp tart base or you could do an egg based one like a baked one very very simple and it's you know it just works so well and the better the chocolate the bitter the chocolate um, the, the, the higher the cocoa solids it works so nicely with the kind of like the crisp bitterness of the pastry and then, because you will always imagine that a chocolate tart is going to be lovely and sweet, but actually it works so nice when it's dark and bitter and strong. And then you can serve something really sweet on the side, whether it's like, you know, whipped up beautiful kind of like salt caramel creme chantilly or something like that, or, you know, just a drizzle of salt caramel over the top. You know, all of a sudden you start bringing in all those flavors. But yeah, a lovely baked chocolate tart with, with bitter chocolate through it. Absolutely beautiful. Um, all right, so we've got pastry. Now, what about browning the meat first? Yeah, I mean, so they, they used, when I first started cooking, when I grew up, and it used to be, yeah, you, you would sear the meat to make like a casserole or, or some form of stew or a braise or anything like that. And it would be, you'd sear the meat to lock in the flavours. Now, that's locking the juices. That's, that's not true. That doesn't happen, okay? That doesn't keep it moist. But what it does do is it drives flavour. It's so, so important. So searing meat, big chunks of meat, and, and not just like browning it just a little bit, you know, and, and then going, yeah, that's fine, that'll do really caramelizing it, really driving that flavor forward because 
if you think of the nicest bits to eat on like a barbecue or a burger or even like a really good roast beef when you do a joint, people like the outside bits. They like the end bits because that's where that wonderful meaty flavour comes from. So if you do that on some braising steak or some lamb or whatever it is that you're going to cook and get really dark flavour. And if you think, oh my God, this is overcooked, it's all chewy. It's it's like, I mean, it, it's like shoe leather. That's fine because you're going to braise it. So what you do there is you've driven the flavour part of it. Then once you put it, put it back into the the braising liquor and you cook it for three hours, it suddenly becomes soft and delicious and unctuous and all that flavor that you've got from the beginning bit is so important. So yeah, caramelization of meat like that is is incredibly important. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. And is that so you need to toss it in like some seasoned flour before, or is it just straight in the pan with some oil? So if you're making just like a straightforward light beef stew, what would you do? So it depends, right? It depends on your stock. Now, the flour is there supposedly as a thickener. So when you get toss it in flour, and then that's a way of trying to help thicken the sauce. But if you've got a good stock in the first place, then you won't need that. Also, there's another way of doing it that once it's cooked, you can reduce the sauce down whilst it's there. So the flour is not a necessity at all. It helps to kind of give a coat and, and, and a kind of a crust on the meat but the reality is it's about driving that flavor so the flour is there depending on your stock and sauce i mean and this also works for mince now what we do you know quite often we do like ragouts uh, uh, in the restaurants and the pubs and they're all about driving that flavor forward and we roast mince i mean there's so many people and i, I know i've mentioned it loads of times before but you know you used to learn when i was a young kid seeing people make spaghetti bolognese where you we talked about it onions you put t- diced onions in the pan you stir them around just a little bit but they're still a little bit hard then you throw in some garlic and hopefully you don't burn it which is another like garlic burns really quickly don't put it in and too hard and fast right at the beginning because that bitterness is quite acrid and it'll go and it what you won't get rid of it it'll stay there throughout the whole dish but roast the meat right roast the mince put it in an oven put it on an oven tray and bake it for ages and ages and ages 45 minutes an hour do it the day before it doesn't really matter break it up every now and then bash it about with a wooden spoon you could do it in a frying pan if you want to i mean it's a way of frying it up but make it really dark really crispy kind of you want it to have a texture a little bit like um like coffee granules instant coffee granules or or a bit like cat litter do you know what I mean? yeah like you want it <laughs> really you, selling it yeah. really making it sound delicious <laughs> but what you're trying to do is you're trying to get really crispy really well done lots of tiny little bits of, of super fried mince drain the fat off leave it there leave it to go cold and it's all right and then what happens is you've then driven that flavor you've got that beautiful roasted meat flavor and then when you make your tomato sauce or if you're making it for a spaghetti bolognese or you're doing it for a, a, a beef chili or even doing it with minced lamb for like a, a, a lamb a casserole or a lamb um, shepherd's pie once it's that you make that gravy that stock then you put the mince back in and it rehydrates it's kind of like putting raisins into wine you know they suddenly they got wonderful they've still got that beautiful dark wonderful flavor but 
they become soft. They become it comes back. It comes back to being it's rehydrated. But you've done all the work at the beginning by roasting it and getting that flavour. So it's so important. I think like roasting it's such a good trick as well because otherwise I think a lot of recipes will say you know to brown the meat in batches because that can be quite difficult, especially if the pan's not very big. It can take a really long time. So if you can roast it. That's going to make a lot more sense. Also, if you know you're going to do it, it's nothing. there's nothing wrong with doing it the day before. Like, because this is a process that takes a long time to get it right. You know, it's not hard work to do, but it does take a lot longer than you think. So you could always do it the day before, get all that wonderful colour and keep it in the fridge. It's no problem. Just a little bit of planning will go a long, long way. Okay. And still on kind of talking about meat... Letting meat rest, I think that's one of the things you kind of do, perhaps when you're doing roast dinner, you just leave it to rest, but maybe not really knowing why you're doing it. So tell me a little bit about what's happening. So listen, this is so important because, um, I mean, it's so important for bigger joints where you want to keep moisture, you want to keep flavour. For things like minute steaks or thin bavette steaks, things like that, there's nothing wrong with that being like quick quickly cooked on a high heat and served straight away because they're just wafer thin and the more you leave that to rest it'll overcook but it's so so important for for joints of meat for things that you want to be cooked medium or medium rare for even things like um, pork chops and chicken breasts where you can get that wonderful sear that lovely flavor and then you leave it so that residual heat continues to cook to the middle where you've left it to one side where you've got high heat from the outside you take it off that heat but it still begins to get to the middle. And the best way of describing it is, so if you get yourself, put yourself in a really hot bath, right? You get in, the first thing you'll do, your body is like, oh, it's really tough. Oh my God, this is hot. And you know, you have to kind of like force yourself in and then you just go, okay, okay, okay. Like I'm getting used. That's what's happening in the meat in a pan. It's It's really hot. It's really tight. It's suddenly all those kind of uh, natural muscular fibers, they contract, they, they become really tight. So once you take it out of its hot pan or your hot bath, if you then to cut it in half straight away, it relax and all of those juices just suddenly come out. They come onto the plate and it just becomes, and everyone will think, oh, my, my steak's still really bloody but it's not it's just everything about it's really squeezed in that tiny so if you then take it out of the pan and just leave it alone okay what will happen is it will begin to relax the muscle fibers the tension in it everything will just settle just a little bit the same as when you get out of the hot bath just you just go okay everything's all right now i'll begin to settle and that's the point okay that's the point when you can slice it and serve it just letting it chill and and it makes such a big difference the meat doesn't it it will cut it's tender It, it doesn't feel as uptight and is and is uh, kind of like highly strung you just leave it to relax it's very very important and i think one of the big things is so many people worry about it being um going cold yeah that's well, what i was gonna ask yeah what do you do so you, you, but don't worry about it because there's residual heat it's cooking it to the middle and Everybody thinks that food should always be served piping hot. That's not true. Like some of the best flavours you get from roasted meats are actually when they're almost just above room temperature. You know, that's where the flavours are. Everything else you serve with it, piping hot roast potatoes and the green veg and whatever, all of that, yeah, absolutely, no problem, super hot. The meat, the flavours of it is much better, you know, when it's just warm is perfect, all right? And if you want to give it a quick flash through the oven afterwards, leave it to relax chill once it's rested then put it back in the oven for a minute or two just to get the outside a bit warm again and and hot again but the middle uh, trust me will still be warm because that residual heat has continued that cooking process then what about not adding enough fat to the pan yeah so this is um 
It's weird. So when you see somebody like a superstar like James Martin who bangs on about butter, we know James Martin goes on about butter all the time, right? However, there's a reason for it, okay? So you put loads of butter in a pan and you you cook with loads of it and you use it loads. And the reason for that is, is two things, okay? Butter gives flavor, okay? It's fantastic. It's amazing. As it cooks, it caramelizes. Those buttermilks kind of brown and you get that lovely nutty flavor, okay? but And it also works for color as well. So as you're cooking with it, where it's caramelizing, it it begins to color everything that you're doing with it. And also those buttermilks, they steam, all right? So that, that as they cook, they steam. So there's all sorts of like chemical and, and uh, I, I suppose, um, scientific processes that are going on in that pan that are helping cook a piece of meat or some potatoes or whatever it is you're doing. But you're not eating it all. You're just using that as a process of cooking, okay? So you're just using that in the method of cooking. You know, you have you can have plenty of oil in there that is in a pan. That, that's to give colour, caramelisation. It also helps to keep the food cooked beautifully because if you dry fry things, sometimes it draws and sucks moisture from it. It burns too quickly. It becomes quite acrid. And what happens is that the, the, the fats that you're cooking in helps to protect whatever it is that you're cooking. You're not eating it all. You're just cooking it in it. You know, if you like, I mean, if you have something, you you put a tempura piece of fish in a in a deep fat fryer. Like once it comes out, it's really nice, crispy. It's steamed in this beautiful batter. All right, it's been deep fried in three liters of oil. You're not drinking the oil, are you? You're eating the thing that's cooked in it. So yeah, I mean, there's lots of. From a health point of view, you could say, yes, to simply grilled is absolutely perfect and that's the right way to go. However, there isn't anything wrong with cooking um, in plenty of oil, plenty of butter, because it helps the caramelization of whatever it is you're cooking. It does help that cooking process. So don't be shy of putting it in there. Just don't eat it all. Just use like a slotted spoon to take it out, maybe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly that. Okay, that sounds good. You mentioned um, garlic. Do you want to just? Oh, yeah, you've garlic. Gone very serious. I love garlic. Right, I know I love garlic, <laughs> but there is. It's one of those big problems. Everyone, everybody has garlic. Like everyone puts garlic in. It doesn't matter what they do. Whether they're making a, a, a chili, they're making a, a lasagna. They're using it as the bottom of spaces of stews with onions, um, but simple, quick pasta sauces, all of those sort of things. But it. It's actually quite a tricky thing to deal with. You know, garlic, it, to get the most flavor, what are you doing? Are you chopping it? Are you using a press? Are you grating it? What it? Like, are you putting it on a chopping board and crushing it with your knife and then putting a sprinkle of salt on like you see chefs do and then rub it around? Like, chefs don't actually do that. You know, what, you know, what we Wait, basically... what? Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it, well, it makes a mess of the chopping board. It, like, it, it, I mean, I get why you do it. But for me, grating garlic is always the best way because... If, if you grate it, garlic contains so many natural oils, and those oils are so packed full of punchy flavor. So if you grate it, you kind of, you draw more flavor. So if you're used to like slicing garlic and putting that in a pan, okay, and you use two cloves of garlic, if you grate two cloves of garlic, it's almost like you've used four because you've, you've, ex- you've squeezed every last drop of flavor out of that clove. So that, for, for me, it is so important, grating of garlic. Unless, of course, it is the texture, the thin pieces that you want. You want that garlic kind of like structure to it in a very simple, I don't know, garlic and olive oil sauce that you just simply toss some cockles and some chilies and some chopped fresh herbs and some pasta in it. I get it. You know, you want the garlic point. But if you want that flavor, grating it is so important. 
one of the big things that so many people do is put the garlic in a sauce or a base too early because if the if you we go back to the onions if the onions aren't cooked and then you put the garlic in and you fry it it burns really 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 quickly if the heat is too high um if you go in too early and you're trying to get the onions cooked but the garlic's gone in too early and the onions are now not soft enough but the garlic is cooked and then you know there's all garlic put it right at the end once the onions are cooked that's when you put the garlic in because it doesn't take long to start releasing those flavors and if it does burn it has such a horrible, really burnt, bitter flavour that you just cannot get rid of. Like you could cook a stew for three hours, you can do a ragu gently on the stovetop for an hour and a half and that flavour, if you've burnt garlic at the beginning, will never go away. Good to talk about. I'm, I'm pleased as well because I was like, oh, I've not really got time to kind of add the salt and smash it on the board. So I usually just grate it. Turns out I've been doing the right thing all the time. 100% that's the right thing, mate. Well done. Yes. Top marks. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> Okay, so the one last thing I wanted to ask was about, or I wanted to talk about, was trusting your instincts and patience. So I think trusting your instincts is quite an important skill to learn, particularly in cookery. So things like bread and like learning, you know, perhaps when um, the dough is too dry and too wet, or like when you know that, like trusting that you know. And also just how your kitchen kit works. So knowing that your oven heats up slightly differently on one side or that it runs a bit hotter, knowing that and just trusting that you know. Um, And then I've said this before about myself and I think on previous podcasts about my impatience. So I'm not a particularly patient cook. So if I'm slow cooking something, I have to do like something else at the same time, like whether it's a garnish or a dessert, just otherwise I will check it and open the oven door another. But you're nodding. You're like, yeah, that's really... (laughs) What have you learned about yourself as a cook and as a I mean, just as a person, I'm very impatient. I want things done. I want that. So, and I think quite a lot, most chefs are, they're about getting things done. You want to get it done. You want to get it cooking. But there is, there is that process, um, particularly to those kind of things that take a long time, slow roast and braises and all of that sort of stuff, or, or Yorkshire puddings or cakes that you're trying to make and you want to open a door. There is that, you've got to find that bit of self-restraint. You have to find that period of just going, okay, no, I'm just going to trust it to do its thing. Like, and there's nothing I can do until that point. Don't open the door. Don't do anything with it. And, and, and you're right when you talk about instincts, because we, if you believed in yourself a lot more in that kitchen, you would achieve so much more. You know, there's, 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 there's kind of people that will look at a recipe book and they will follow it to the point. And that's an exact way of cooking and it will work. And that's great. And there's the other ones that use them as guidelines. And I think the more confident you become in a kitchen, the more instincts you, you gain, you trust, you understand. And, you know, unless you're having a go at it, you're not going to get any better at it. You can't just suddenly go from never cooking anything before ever to cooking a three-course meal for eight people and a dinner party on a Saturday night that you start at four o'clock in the afternoon. Like, it's never, ever going to happen. You have to practice. You have to trust yourself. You have to just have a go. You know, styles of cooking, you know, make different types of pasta sauce or different types of pasta bake. And you start off by doing, you know, following a couple of recipes and then start going, actually, I'll do it myself. And the last time I did it with, I don't know, butternut squash, but this time I'm going to try it with celeriac or I'm going to do it with something. And just having a go and thinking of if you become more entwined with your food, you have an understanding of like-for-like ingredients or what they could do or how they work. And all of it 
it is, I mean, all of it is based on practice. I mean, there isn't anything you could say about it apart from just having a go. But we are much better at doing things, particularly in the kitchen, than we actually realise. You know if a chicken breast is cooked or not. Really, you do. You know, you you have to go with, okay, yeah, no, I'm going to go with this. Gonna, you also know when it's overcooked, okay? You'll also go, or you can look at something and go, oh, that doesn't look right. You know, if you're at a buffet, at a wedding, and you're walking around and you're looking at stuff, you're going, okay, that looks amazing, that, you start picking up the things that look nice, even if you don't know what they are. You know, you know, okay, that salad looks lovely. What's in it? I'm not really sure. You know, those are your instincts going, yeah, I'll have a go at that or I'll try that. That'll be delicious. And they're the same sort of things when it comes to cooking. So trusting your instincts is such a massive thing to do. Let it go. Don't be don't be so impatient. I'm just, it sounds like I'm giving myself a pet talk. <laughs> like, and just have a just go, relax, get into it and enjoy it. Yeah, and there's certain things where, like, you do just have to trust that you can do it. There's certain um, things where you're, like, turning something out and you just have to make that swift movement, you know, and you just have to go, yes, this is going to be fine. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> you mean, like, that move where you put a plate on top yeah. of something and then you have to flip the yeah. tin over and I hope it... I love doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, yeah, that sense of jeopardy. Yeah. yeah, it's great, isn't it? I mean, it is brilliant. But still now, I've been cooking 30 years, and that's a, like you still get that, oh, my God, is this going to work? The still point of making an omelette in a pan and wondering if it's going to stick, you know, all of those sort of things. They're all the, they're the same, you know, and we talk about, you know, we're worried about, people worry about what mistakes they make. We make mistakes like that day in, day out, hourly mistakes are made in professional kitchens all the time. There's little things that are going wrong. But you only know how to adjust them and change them and make it happen because you're, it's our jobs that are in the kitchens that we're going, okay, no, let's redo that or let's do that again. Let's try and make that work. Let's do, you're constantly going, okay, start that. Because there is, there's so many things that are on the go all the time. Professionals are making mistakes more than the people at home because we're doing more cooking, but we're learning from it. If you think as young 18-year-old chefs that are coming into kitchens, they're training, they're learning. It might be the first time in a kitchen. They might, you might have cooked more than them, you know. So they're constant mistakes being made is an understanding of it. And I think the difference in a professional kitchen is that. It's, you know, it's pretty much operational for 16 hours of the day. You know, you get in there in the morning and it goes all the way through with people on split shifts or changing around. But there's always something that's happening in a professional kitchen. So there's it's always ongoing. At home, you might cook a meal for an hour of of the day, you know, when you're getting from work. And that's it. That's the only time that happens. And if you make, make a mistake, that's it. It feels like it's the end of the world because it's your tea. However... Don't be upset about it. Don't worry about it. Just, you know, re have another go. Learn from it. Everybody is making mistakes all the time. You're not just the only person that's doing it. Brilliant. Such good advice. Thank you so much. <laughs> I think that's all we've got time for. But thank you so much. A pleasure. Loads of tips. Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode. Let's cook together. See you next time.